Welcome to this episode of CDM Media's Executive Insights. I'm your host, J.D. Miller. We have a great show for you today as we dive into Zero Trust Privacy with Dr. Lisa McKee, Director of Governance, Risk, Compliance, and Privacy at Huddle. At the center of Zero Trust is data, and for good reason. Organizations that have visibility into their data and the activity around it can detect suspicious behavior even when other security controls have been compromised. In today's podcast, Dr. Lisa McGee will outline zero trust privacy and security responsibilities, methods for coordination and collaboration between privacy and security within a zero trust strategy, and oh so much more, including what she hopes the future security leaders of tomorrow will know when it comes to zero trust and privacy. So when we come back, Dr. McGee. Dr. Lisa McKee has 20 years of industry experience in cybersecurity, information technology, privacy, U.S. and international data privacy laws, vendor management, software development, IT, audit, compliance, PCI, risk, and governance, oh, so much more. Whew, that's a lot. Along with the role at Huddle, Dr. McKee is the, on the faculty at Dakota State University, where she teaches security and privacy courses, and is the founder and partner of a consultancy, American Security Privacy. Dr. McKee, thank you for joining us. Thank you, JD. Appreciate so, the opportunity to be here. You recently were one of the, the key speakers at our Kansas City Summit and um, loved what you were talking about when you were talking about zero trust and strategy. So let's just dive in. Talk to me about methods for coordination and collaboration between privacy and security within zero trust. Yeah, so the, the, the biggest thing with zero trust is that when we have zero trust conversations, oftentimes companies are trying to sell a solution. It's not something that has a solution. There's no magic bullet for I'm going to go buy this zero trust thing like you're going to buy a GRC tool or, you know, something else or a vulnerability management tool. It's, it's not a tool. It's a concept. It's a methodology. Uh, so that's the first misconception. The other thing that often when organizations start their zero trust journey is that they're starting at the identity and access management layer. Well, great. So I love to ask, what data are you giving those individuals access to? And then you get the big pause of, that's a great question. I'm not sure. So the whole concept of zero trust privacy is taking the, the concepts and principles of zero trust, but really starting at the data layer. Privacy laws and privacy regulations are continuing to increase. 71% of countries in the world have some form of privacy legislation, which is big if you're an international organization that has to comply with all of those laws and regs. Here in the United States, over the last couple of years, we've seen us go from one state privacy law with California to now we have five and there's more proposed and being talked about both at a national, federal and state level. So the laws are here, they're here to stay, like it or not. So I always encourage people to, you know, let's start thinking about these now and early and be proactive instead of reactive. And one of the foundation and the core of privacy is data the right to data, the access to data, correction of data, the data privacy rights that individuals have. But in order to exercise those rights, um, organizations have to know, again, what data do I have? 
What data do I collect on an individual? Who do I share it with? So data trust or zero trust privacy is really looking at data from multiple aspects, which is the privacy piece of it. So how, who am I giving access to the typical zero trust IAM? But who am I re uh, responding to with data from a consent and DSARS perspective? So if we look at data at the heart and the foundation of zero trust, it's right access to the right resources, to the right people at the right times, the right locations, the right devices, the right services, the right buildings, systems, applications, etc. It's not the old mantra of, hey, JD, you and I are on the same team. We're both in security. So guess what? We get the same level of access. That model doesn't fit today. I might be, you know, my role is governance, risk, compliance, privacy, all those fun things that you mentioned. I'm, I don't do hands-on keyboard security things like a lot of my colleagues. So it doesn't make sense for us to have the same level of access, that role-based access that we are traditionally used to. So what it does is it takes that role-based access one layer deeper, and they always say um, least privileged. Well, least privileged is looking at it from an individual aspect. So if I have zero trust, meaning I trust nothing, I'm going to look at you as an individual based on your role, based on what you need access to, not just because you're a member of, this, of a given team, what data do you specifically need access to? And when we talk about data, we're looking at data from all perspectives. So at the heart of security, at the heart of privacy is understanding what's my inventory. Most companies don't do that right. Like they still struggle after 20 years of talking about security. Do you have an accurate inventory? And oftentimes people don't. Do you have an accurate network diagram? And they're like, um, I did six months ago when my last audit was done, but yeah, good luck with that today. So if we, it, it, it's not really changing those components. You still need current network diagrams. You still need um, identity and access management controls. We're just gonna start at the bottom layer with the privacy aspect and knowing what data elements do I have? What categories of data do I have? Where is that data stored, shared, processed, transmitted? And specifically the sharing piece is important because privacy regulations, especially California, you have to disclose even when data is shared and sold. And people don't always think about that. And I just got into a conversation yesterday with a colleague about, do we call these vendors? Do we call them partners? What's the difference? Are they third parties? And really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what label you put on those entities. It's, it's very black and white. Is it you or is it outside your organization? And if it's outside, then you should know everything about where that data is going and what that data is. So if we start at the bottom layer with data, data management, from there, we can start doing our records of processing activity. That's a privacy obligation. You have to know the data elements and the processing before you can do that. It's taking data one layer deep Then, do I have an inventory and do I have a network diagram? You can also then do um, your, your, your records of processing, but also your governance and other aspects of data privacy, such as your data classification and your data tagging. Companies aren't doing that well today. So 
one law that's on the books that I like to talk about because it came up and surprised me was Colorado student data privacy law. It was passed in 2016. It is not one of these core state privacy laws that we talk about, but it is on the books today. And if you're dealing with student privacy or student data in Colorado, you must comply with that law. And that law says you have to know down to the data element layer, not just categories, which is what GDPR and CCPA and others say, but actually the data element. Do I have your name? Do I have your birthday? Do I have your email address? Not just I have personal information, but specifically what is that? And so getting at that data element layer, understanding exactly what information you have, where is it going across the network, but also where is it going externally from outside of your network uh, is really the heart and foundation of zero, zero trust privacy. So it supports zero trust from the security and the technical side that we've been talking about for several years, but it also introduces and supports the idea and the requirements around how do I meet privacy obligations? Interesting. In So a lot of people are on their zero trust journey today, right? They've started at some point in time and it is a journey, you know, not a destination. It's, it's a journey. So talk to me, what new challenges have presented themselves when it comes to zero trust and privacy, you know, really over the last five years as organizations are, are trying to, to make their way through? Yeah, the, the biggest challenge, and, and you mentioned our KC CISO event that, that we presented this at, was people are starting at that identity and access layer because they think that that's really what zero trust is. Because zero trust is least privilege, least access. You don't trust anything. That's just the general concepts around zero trust. So generally, inherently, people are thinking identity and access management, authorization, authentication, and things like that. But then they don't think about, well, what's that data that I'm getting access to? And is that appropriate? And is that necessary? So as we take a step back, let's talk about the data. Because now what data am I giving you access to? And that's where people are struggling is, oh, I never considered the data component. And we just have all these roles. And so you just get access based on a role, but it's not necessarily least privileged, and it's definitely not zero trust privacy where it's individualized. So that's generally where people have, uh, that I've talked to, um, have been struggling. The other component of it is the tools. You go to conferences, especially big conferences, RSA, Black Hat, things like that, and these vendors, a lot of vendors are out there saying, oh, I've got this, this new shiny magic bullet that will solve all of your problems. And I love to ask the question of, great, do you write my policies and procedures? And they're like, well, no, we don't do that, but we'll do all these other things. And so then I'm like, but then you're really not a magic bullet solution and that you do, do everything. And so I think that in the conversations that I've had with individuals, they're getting caught up in you know, the sales pitch, they're getting caught up in, you know, this helps me get one step further without taking a step back, creating a plan. Like, do you have a plan to do zero trust? Does it start with data, data mappings, data inventories, data flows, network diagrams? If not, it should. And then work your way up from there, both on the security side and the privacy side. And, and I totally get, you know, you start with data and data's at the core of it. But Golly, Lisa, we have so much data at our fingertips more than ever before. How is that not overwhelming for a security executive? 
It is. I mean, it, it absolutely is. And especially if you're an international organization, I've worked for countless international organizations and that just compounds things, you know, infinitely because all the places that that data can go overseas and then what are they doing it and where is it going from there? And the other component that we don't often talk about is vendors, third parties, partners. Great. So you and I are partners. I share some data with you so that you can offer me a service to support my customers. I'm going to treat you differently. I'm not going to do a security review on you because we're partners, right? I just trust you. That's the mindset today. But that's not compliant with laws and regs. It doesn't matter what our partnership is or what that relationship is. If that entity is external to your organization and data is flowing to them, regardless of how and when and what that agreement looks like, it's still leaving your organization uh, perimeter, then that data has to be tracked. And when we talk about vendors and DSARs, right, data subject access requests, and I was talking about the 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 individual's rights, that has to go down to the to the vendors and those third parties. I have to disclose that information on my website. So how am I doing privacy notices and consent and disclosure if I don't know where my data is internally and especially don't know where it's going externally? And then the other thing that really starts to muddy all of this is, okay, now you and I are partners, Oh, so you have partners that support you to support me. So now they're fourth, fifth, sixth, however further down the line that we get. And when you look at GDPR and some of our standard contractual clauses and legal obligations internationally that talks about data across borders, yes, it keeps you up at night because you don't know where that data is going. You don't know how that data is protected. Once it's outside of your hands, you you your control is pretty is pretty limited and and I was I was joking when I said I'm not going to do um, you know assessments on you. Obviously, I should be, but that's the mantra. So I'm doing an assessment on you. Are you doing an assessment on that third or fourth party? Are you disclosing that to me as the originator of this deal? So data flows everywhere, and it is scary. You know, let's dive a little bit more into third party because so many organizations have to rely on third parties um, because staffing issues just to get their arms around what they're doing as an organization. And I, I do believe that, that it is semantics, but they're partners, not vendors, right? Uh, but how do you approach this now as you're looking at new partners and how do you truly vet them? How do you approach them that's different now than it was a, a few years ago? Um, I don't know that it's different now than a few years ago. I do vendor management now. I did it many years ago. The program is generally still the same. What I do differently that I think others are not doing and what makes it seem like it's different today than different, you know, five, 10 years ago is are you doing a financial assessment on that vendor? A lot of organizations are not. They're just saying, give me your security reports. Show me your SOC 2 and maybe ISO or PCI and we'll call it done. Okay. And, and half of the time they're not even reading them because or if they do, they don't know what they're reading because they're security and technical controls. So it's not just the, give me your compliance reports. And as long as somebody else said, you're good, I'm good. It's what's your financial, you know, your financial bottom line look like? Are you a solid company financially? Um, what about data breaches? Have you been breached? How, you know, what are you doing to protect that data? 
go on site, do on site vendor assessments. Don't just take their word for it. You would be amazed at the things you would see just walking around the building of a company and walking around internally or walking through a data center. And you look at their, their logs, their visitor logs, and you're like, oh, well, you, you're not capturing these data points. Like, is that not important? Or you look at it and you see somebody that signed the name, you know, Scooby-Doo, and you're like, great, was that really a person? Did you actually look at the signature? And as an external auditor and consultant, these are real things that I have seen. And people aren't evaluating those aspects of vendors. Uh, and then additionally, location. So unfortunately, we're in a time of unrest with COVID, with war, with other things going on. There's a lot of unrest, both domestically and internationally. Are you doing business that's with a company in an area that is impacted by that? What impact does that have on your organization? Look at Ukraine as an example, right? That's, that's happening right now with the war in Ukraine. There are a lot of businesses that had to up and go somewhere else because Ukraine is now on the government's website of you can't do business there. Can you imagine the disruption that that's caused companies globally? Like when we went to COVID and everybody had to start working from home and I don't have enough laptops and VPN space. I mean, that's the disruption that we're talking about and the impact that really can be solved with a robust vendor management program. And those are things that I've been doing for years as vendor management, but I don't know that they're widely adopted. You know, it's interesting too, because the attack vectors are more varied than ever before. So you have those disruptions, you have those attack vectors, you know, it's not just email, it's your printer. It's, you know, as you're walking around that vendor, seeing, you know, what, what is accessible. Um, you mentioned, you know, where GDPR, you know, really sets guidelines for us or, or CCPA, each state is going to be following in suit. How much tighter do you see this getting, you know, over the next few years? I don't see it stopping. Um, personally, I live in a state where we don't have privacy laws. And as a privacy professional that's been doing this for over 10 years, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking that I can tell my constituents and colleagues in other states, exercise your rights, file a complaint with your local, um, you know, your local attorney's general office. And they take that extremely seriously because they have laws on the books that are already passed that say you can't do that. I do that in a state or somebody else does that in a state that doesn't have these laws. They might help you. They might not. Hey, we don't have laws that say you can't. So yeah, is it ethical? Maybe, maybe not. Do I agree that you have a concern? Sure. Yeah, it's probably a concern, but is it worth my time when I've got other things that are, you know, definitively um, violations of laws? And so that's, I personally would like to see a national privacy law. Um, the other thing that we're going to start running into, and we are already seeing this with the five states that are on the books today, is each one's doing something slightly different. So what's the age of consent? What's the age of a minor? In some states, it's 13. In some states, it's 16. I think in one, it's 18. Um, how long do you have to respond to a data subject request is varying and what data do you return to them? So I would like to see a national law, some standardization, because one thing that I think complicates these for organizations, and at least for me as a privacy professional security, like I do all these things, is we are overburdened with laws and regulations. 
we, we just aren't. Like, there's too many of them and they're all these, oh, but for this one, you have to do this. And for this one, you have to do this one thing different. And companies, they can't comply because there's so many of them. And then the data breach number keeps going up. So then states think, oh, we'll just throw more laws at it because clearly the laws on the books aren't working. It's not that they're not working, it's that there's too many and, and it's cumbersome. So imagine a world where you have your data, right? Going, taking this back to zero trust and data. You know your data, you have accurate inventories, you know your data mappings and your identity access um, programs. Then if you, from that, you mentioned attack vector. We've been talking about this with a colleague of mine um, about protect vector. Everything can be attacked. But if you know where your data is, and especially your crown jewels and your most sensitive data, I can put my strongest controls and access and security, encryption, anonymization, whatever that looks like around that most sensitive data. And guess what? You want to go after a printer? Have at it. I know where my crown jewels are and I'm going to protect that because I did my data layer at, you know, at the very beginning. And so it takes that attack surface to a much smaller component and looking at it from a protect surface, which is smaller. And then also looking at it from the perspective of we can't protect everything and you can't protect what you don't know. So if you do this data mappings, you do the inventories, you have accurate network diagrams as a foundation. Now I know what I know. I know what my protect surface is. Everything's going to be attacked. And now I can start implementing sound security controls that also support my privacy obligations. Yeah, th there's not a lack of things that are going to keep us up at night, right? There, there's not a lack. So you, you have the luxury of teaching the future security leaders out there, right? And right now there's no lack of case studies on breaches, on ransomware, on, on um, <laughs> those things that keep us up at night. Talk to me a little bit about as you're, you're teaching and, and you're trying to instill you know, best practices when it comes to security and privacy to these um, young leaders, what are you trying to make sure that they walk away knowing? That security and privacy have to go hand in hand. So I created a term called CompreSec, which is a mashup of compliance, privacy, and security. And no one of those can really function singularly without the other. It's collaboration. So most organizations have a compliance function, have a security function, have a privacy function. And oftentimes privacy is being done in a silo by legal attorneys that are not technical. So have a technical person that also is a privacy technologist or a privacy engineer that can help with the with the, the security and the technology solutions that go around privacy. And then bring those, those individuals to the table. Bring your business to the table. Talk about these solutions. Have an organization strategy that supports the business but also supports the security, the privacy, the compliance obligations, these can coexist and you can find balance and harmony, but if and only when everybody is working together, marching to the same beat and to the same, you know, to the same strategic plan. Oh, this is fantastic. You know, fantastic stuff, Lisa. And, and again, thank you so much for speaking at our Kansas City Summit. I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic what you brought to the audience, um, but thank you so much for, for being with us. 
Thank you to Dr. McKee for joining us today. If you'd like to hear other great speakers like Lisa at CDM Summits, check out cdmmedia.com as we have upcoming events in Montreal, Calgary, New York, Chicago, Orlando, and oh so much more in the coming weeks. As always, I'm J.D. Miller, and thanks for listening. Thank you.